0: Uh,
1: Hey, this is Ed. So, this is a podcast, is that right? This is. Okay, we're officially podcasting right now. That's awesome. This is straight from the cutter's mouth. Welcome to Straight from the Cutter's Mouth, a retina podcast. At least once a week, we bring you insights and perspectives from the world of vitreoretinal surgery. I'm your host, Dr. Jay Schreeder. Today on episode 136, our first episode post the 2018 AO Annual Meeting. We have a practice management panel that was uh, requested by one of our listeners. Doctors David Eichenbaum of Tampa, Florida, Ryan Isom of Salt Lake City, Utah, and Shah, of Boston, Massachusetts conducted a roundtable discussion concerning various topics listeners have questions about. These included the use of sample injectable medications, how to treat and manage uninsured patients and how the practice handles that financially, discussion of private equity and what it means for the practice, and more. As you can tell from my voice, this has been an up-and-down month for me. Uh, health-wise, nothing serious, but uh, a little bit of a recovery from things. Uh, so I just want to thank everyone who came to our course at AEO. We really appreciate you coming. If you couldn't make it out, uh, we will be posting an episode uh, summary, hopefully, in the next uh, week or so. Um, with As many of the panelists as are, are free to kind of talk about what we discussed and give us the short version uh, in a podcast form. Uh, and uh, please continue to listen, continue to get feedback. Thanks to everyone who said hi. And um, hope you enjoy this episode and all the future ones. Straight from the Carter's Mouth is back with a panel of attendings for to discuss private practice and retina practice issues. Uh, in alphabetical order, first, uh, Dr. David Eichenbaum, uh, new to the program. Um, he is a retina specialist in Tampa, Florida, part of Retina Vitreous Associates of Florida, where he's a partner. Uh, David, welcome to the program.
0: Happy to be here today. I'm uh, looking forward to my first appearance on straight from the Carter's Mouth.
1: Next in alphabetical order, Dr. Ryan Isom uh, from Salt Lake City, Utah, where he is a member of Retina, Vitre- Retina and Vitreous Surgeons of Utah. Ryan, welcome back.
2: Yeah, thanks for having me, Jay.
1: And last but not least, Dr. Shirag Shah from uh, Ophthalmic Consultants of Boston in uh, Boston, Massachusetts. He also is uh, the co-director of the fellowship program there, which is the joint fellowship between OCB and Tufts. Shirag, uh, welcome back.
3: Thanks for having me, Jay
1: so um we've done a a couple of these primary practice issue panels before and actually all of these questions were sent in by reader uh listeners who uh wanted to have these questions answered in a panel format so um start right off the bat uh the first question i got was regarding uh sample medications and usually these are injectable sample medications so uh, i'm going to start with you david um what does your practice utilize sample medications um and what is your protocol generally for using these medications uh, do you limit them to one per patient? are there patients who receive these periodically um, what is kind of your philosophy regarding how to use these uh, in your practice?
2: so
0: it's a great question you know, samples are a um, they can be a controversial topic and there are a lot of ways to handle them The nice thing about samples is there's really no wrong way to handle samples you know you can use them for whatever you want you can use them to flavor your ice cream sandwich you choose to do that. We don't choose to use them that way. Um, what we typically do is samples in our practice, and we have samples across all five of our offices, and our doctors tend to use them in a similar fashion um, as far as I know. And we typically use them to start patients on FDA-approved anti-angiogenic, if that's what we elect to do with the patient um, on the day of presentation. Um, we almost always offer Uh, day of presentation injections that patients often but not always accept, and uh, if they do um, want to go ahead and proceed with same day of presentation injections, especially if they have a Medicare Advantage plan or some other version of insurance other than standard Medicare um, with a a Medicare secondary, then um, uh, we often do use a sample in those cases. Um, But we also use them at times of the year when the insurances are renewed, like around the beginning of a new year. If a patient is on FDA-approved therapy and is doing well, and we're not sure if the patient has had a change in benefits at the beginning of the year, we're not sure if the patient has had a renewal of copay assistance, we often use the sample then. So we don't limit them to one sample per patient strictly, but we try not to use them routinely in patients. That being said, uh, we're a practice that's fortunate to have a goodly supply of samples, and there are certain patients who get samples more often because of need. And I'd say that that's a rare instance, it's not a weekly occurrence even, but if you're going to take care of patients on a pro bono basis at all, or indigent patients, um, and you have trouble getting them on free drug programs, sometimes samples come in handy for that type of thing.
1: Shirag, you're in a multi-specialty group uh, in a different part of the country, in the Northeast. Um, is your practice or uh, handle things differently? Do you personally handle things differently, what David stated?
3: Uh, I really liked uh, David's response, and I uh, learned a lot just now. Uh, unfortunately, our practice does not allow samples, so I don't have any experience with them.
1: What is the philosophy behind that? Just out of curiosity. And let me ask you, Shirag. then what do you do also for those patients
0: who come in and and uh, are gonna get same-day therapy? I'm sorry, I just didn't put it in there.
3: Yeah, no, two great questions. So, uh, I'll take Jay's first. So the, I think Jay's question was, what was the philosophy behind that? Um, this was started by our former president who felt that samples may bias the provider to use um, unlabeled drugs. And so in order to try in order to not be biased by what's available in our refrigerators, that's samples, um, the idea was to just have providers use what they wish to use without being biased by samples. I'll tell you my personal belief is, just as, as uh, Dave pointed out, I think that there are uh, many instances where samples can be quite helpful. <laughs> um, and I, I wish you know that we, had, that we had access to that, but unfortunately, we don't And then, Dave, um, can answer your question, which was, what do we do when someone presents with a new uh, diagnosis requiring therapy? Um, I uh, start everyone out with Avastin, and uh, almost mm-hmm. always it's covered, and if it's not covered, then I just eat the cost. And then mm-hmm. on that first visit, we will fill out the pre-authorization forms for um, ILEA and Lucentis, and then if we decide to switch them in the future, we'll know what the co would be and the connectable and what the coverage is like.
0: Sure. What do you guys do, Sharag, um, like in January when when all your patients, you um, don't come to Florida, for example, come back and you're not sure what their new insurance status is? Do you continue them on the successful FDA approved therapy if they're on it? Or do you guys switch them back to an Avastin for that visit to limit the exposure to possibly an uncovered dose?
3: That's an excellent question. I, I haven't uh, Had the experience of having any issues in the new year, the the only issue may be that the deductible resets and then there's a greater out-of-pocket expense. But we'll always mm-hmm. ask patients to keep us updated on their insurance status. And if someone if someone's insurance status changes, then we will consider going back to Evastin unless we can get uh, unless we know that we're going to get approved, or if they're mm-hmm. in a rehab center. Uh, for some reason, I don't know if this is national or just in Massachusetts, if someone's in a rehab that's being paid for by insurance, they won't allow uh, name brand drugs. And so during that period of time while they're in a rehab, we'll have to treat them with Evastin, um and then we'll switch them back to their on-label drug.
0: That, that's a good point. That's a good point. And that, that's the rock. We do that with the rehab patients also.
3: David, okay, is that when you use um, samples when someone's in rehab?
0: So, in rehab, we usually try to keep them on their current medication, but sometimes patients wind up in rehab for a very long time. Um, and sometimes those patients are switched back to a and for a period. But if I switch them back from a successful FDA approved therapy, I'll often do more extensive assessments or tighten the interval, especially if I've switched them to or put them on to an FDA- approved therapy with a the goal of extending their interval between injections. Um, if they're going mm-hmm. back to avastin because of a rehab situation, I'll often try to tighten up their interval. and I'll also often try to give them a sample if they're in a, if they're in rehab for a short amount of time to avoid mm-hmm. changing the medication that they're receiving to keep them on the successful treatment with the same plan.
1: Ryan, your thoughts? out West., yeah, I've got similar a different
2: of comments on that. Um, very similar to David's uh, use of samples. I think the rehab is an important issue. A lot of times patients think just because they have the same insurance but they're in a different facility, it's not a big deal. So we've made that a standard question for every visit. Um, are you in a skilled nursing or a rehab facility? Because that catches a lot of patients that we maybe would have mistakenly just continued with ILEA or Lucentis and gotten dinged by that. So we will really, we really use samples um, in that case, and I think it's a good bridge. Um, But otherwise, I use samples pretty similar to the way that David uses them. really useful for for the beginning of the year when patients are uh, switching insurances and you don't know if they can use it or not. It buys you a little bit of time. And if I'm going to switch patients to another medication, I'm the same as Chirac, I'll start with Avastin on everybody. And then once we extend them out, if they don't go as far as we'd like, then we try and switch them to a different medication. A lot of times I'll use the sample the first visit. So we can see if it's even worthwhile pursuing authorization and funding. And it's a nice bridge for that change. I will make one other comment in terms of bias. So uh, I didn't really use Ozerdex when I came out here. We didn't use it much at Bascom when I was a resident and fellow. And the sample really did expose me to it. I used a lot more of it because we had samples available. And I became a big fan of Ozordex because of those samples where if I didn't have a I don't know that I would have been exposed to it or used it as much as I did. They gave me a taste, That's and I went back for more. Yeah. <laughs> That's a good point you make about about samples. You know, Osrudex did develop a
0: sampling program and that helped me um, start with my use of Osrudex. It's interesting, other drugs, like Iluvian, doesn't have a sampling program. And, you know, I've used, I think, a reasonable, a, a thoughtful amount of, of Iluvian. Um, but I think that it might... Help, especially as drugs, as drugs get more expensive, which I think they inevitably will in aggregate and on average over time, um, and as they get more innovative, it'll help getting them into physicians' hands for pharmaceutical companies to continue with robust sampling programs.
3: I'm sorry. The problem with Alluvian is that it's um, supposed to be a two year drug, and, and mm-hmm. it's uh, one of the probably the probably the most, one of the most expensive drugs that we, we, we use, uh, that might be part of the reason that they don't have a sampling program because of the durability of it. And also, I think the niche of patients that Alluvian could potentially work for is maybe not quite as large as uh, the niche for ILEA or the centers
0: Yeah, I'd, I'd agree with you 100%. And that's uh, definitely part of their strategic plan. Um, regarding not having a sampling program, but it may have helped with their adoption if they at least piloted a sampling program at launch or close mm-hmm. to launch or something like that that um, mm-hmm. I, I don't think that I ever did that at least not in my in my region, so it was always an exposure and a, and a benefits investigation at the very beginning, and I think that hampered uptake at least at, at first you know mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: you know this is a kind of an off, a random question, but if you guys feel comfortable i mean what what volume of sample are you typically keeping in a given office, let's say, like, divided by the number of providers, or, you know, and what do you do in terms of storage? Do you you store this separately than your other medication? Do you have a separate fridge? I mean, these are kind of esoteric nuts and bolts questions, but I'm curious how you guys manage it. David? So,
0: uh, Jay, what we do, we have a shelf for samples, and um, we usually have about half a dozen samples of. Lucentis, half a dozen samples of Ailia, and just one or two Ozuvex samples per office. You know, and, and when, as those deplete, as those get depleted, we ask for more, and um, and because we're fairly—I don't know if it's because of our region or because of our local reps or because we're a fairly busy practice with a—you a, know—we use a fairly large number of FDA-approved medications. We never have trouble supplying the samples. You know, but I always like to have them on hand. I've rarely had an instance where I don't have a sample and I, and I need one. And I think if you can keep about that number, five or six of each, and just one or two Ozierdexes per office, if you're kind of in a medium uh, busy practice, I think you'd probably be okay if you're going to utilize samples.
1: Ryan, any final they, thoughts on they,
0: samples? And, and the nuts the, and bolts the the are that they come directly from the from the local rep. You ask your rep, okay. you sign a paper saying you're getting them, and then you have them, up, and you can use them as you choose.
2: Yeah, and I think the reps do base it off of your volume. I mean, if you're ordering enough um, ILEA or the sentence Sazer decks, then they, they're pretty liberal with their samples. And I think the higher volume you have, the easier it is to get samples. But we we're able. Every doctor signs for a certain number of samples, and each month we're allotted a certain number. And if we really need them, like at the beginning of the year, they'll kind of stock us up in December because they know in January we're, we're going to run into insurance issues. And so they kind of help stock us up for the beginning of the year. Uh, but sometimes we actually ran into. We had a lot of Ozredex on hand. We ended up with close to 20 or 25 of them. So we. Held off on getting more samples for a little while, but now we've used them up again. But they've been very liberal with samples.
1: You know, you're kind of speeding off this topic that David earlier mentioned: indigent patients or patients with you know may not have economic means to pay for drug. But in general, and I'm going to open the question to the group. What are your practices and again personal philosophies and practices regarding uninsured patients or self-pay patients? Um, what kind of rates. How do you determine the rates for those patients? Do you ever do bono therapy such as laser? Um, We mentioned injectables. Um, How about surgery? You know, what options or avenues are available in your areas or within your practice? Um, This is something a lot of people who train to academic institutions may not be used to, but then they go in the real world and uh, they they may confront this issue. So um, we'll kind of snake back. So Ryan, I'll let you start.
2: Yeah, so I run into it fairly often. And our office policy is any self-pay patient when they come in, uh, we usually try and collect $200 um, just up front to be seen as a self-pay patient. If the visit's going to cost less than that, then we'll refund that, that amount. If it's going to cost more than that, then we'll usually ask them to pay the balance at the end. Very often the patients coming in, they don't have $200. They don't have any way of paying $200. Um, so usually they'll go and speak with our uh, billing office, and they will they're really good about kind of feeling out the situation. Is this person down and out and they they just don't have any money to pay? Um, and then we'll just see them anyway. and a lot of patients, it really varies kind of on a case by case basis, but I've got a lady that I, she has wet macular degeneration. I see her every month doing a an and she pays $30 every month. And that's all she can really afford, and so that's what we do. We set up payment plans sometimes. Of, I like them to try and have at least some skin in the game. So even if they're paying $10 a month, if they're doing something, then I feel fine about taking care of them. And some people are just going to go blind without treatment. You've got a retinal detachment, and they don't have any money. They're not going to pay anything. But, so I'll just do the surgery, and we'll just work with the hospital. Uh, the hospital has um, financial aid programs that they can assist with that. But it really just varies on a case-by-case basis. But we try and have the patient at least do something, at least have some contribution so it's not just totally free if they can.
1: You know, before moving on to to dave and tro I'm curious um, and they may have the same question you know when you do this you said everyone does every uh, member of the group have a similar sort of practice pattern and you know if if you're in a group where revenue is overhead shared and then the revenue is divided or depending on how your financial setup is um, do you end up taking a personal financial hit or does the whole group kind of absorb the hit when you for example take care of a patient uh, who may need treatment but just can't afford it
2: yeah, so I don't really take much of a hit. It's more just my time uh, for a surgery or for the visit. They're not really utilizing a lot more in terms of resources. Um, the laser doesn't cost any more to utilize to laser something, or Avastin is it's less than $20 a dose. So I do take a hit, at least on the Avastin side, um, but it's only $20. So it's not really much more of a hit to me financially. It's more just the time to care for a patient that I'm not going to get reimbursed
1: for. Chirag, you're in a much larger multi-specialty group. Again, uh, how much autonomy do you have as a practitioner, and does the group both within retina and throughout specialties have kind of standard policies?
3: I think our, our uh, philosophy somewhere Ryan's in the sense that there is a company-wide policy that they collect $150 uh, from someone who's self-pay. Uh, I think perhaps my situation is a, a little unique uh, compared to Utah and Florida is that, in the sense that um, in Massachusetts we have ramen care and everyone is insured, um, or maybe 99% of patients are insured. And so it's, um, it's very uncommon for us to um, see a self-pay uh, patient who does not have money. Sometimes we see self-paid patients because they're from the Middle East and they have a lot of money. Um, but the the, the impoverished self-paid patients are not that common. It's usually people who might um, not be U.S. citizens and, and as a result don't have health care or, or mass health. Um, I will say that there... So our sort of mutual insurance is called mass health, which basically every mass resident is eligible for. I think you might have to be a U.S. citizen. That's the only only catch. Um, But it it, it doesn't pay very much. Um, And uh, our surgery center, for example, doesn't accept it. And so for those patients, I have to take them to the hospital. Um, I have partners that don't accept MassHealth. I have been of the philosophy just to accept everything and take care of everyone. And and in fact, I I find that sometimes the people who are underinsured are uh, the ones that are the most grateful and the ones that need me the most, because oftentimes they have uh, the most pathology. Um, and uh, and it, it tends to be very gratifying to help those most in need. And I'm, on the rare case where someone comes in without insurance and they're charged the 150, I will usually no charge their visit. And then they'll get their $150 back. Um, and if I have to do a procedure like a laser or an invest, I usually eat the cost of it, but it's, it's not that common. And, it doesn't really cost me anything We're very, very close to nothing.
1: Well, David, we, we do not have Romney care in Florida. <laughs> so, no, um, we do not. <laughs> so I'm sure you encounter this yeah. issue more than Shirag. So what do you guys do? What do you do personally and how much leeway do you have? Yeah. I mean, is there variability between you guys as practitioners? Um, or do you again, do you have kind of a, a unified approach? Yeah. So, so,
0: uh, so in, in, in the same kind of context as Ryan and Chirag, you know, all of us, I think, in, in medicine and in retina do have a humanitarian bent, and we do want to help people. Um, so all of us kind of do kind of fall back on that, it sounds like, as kind of our, our unifying philosophy. We all have different ways of, of applying this in a, in a practical manner. Our practice has a fixed fee policy for um, self-pay patients, and our upfront fee um, for a self-pay patient practice-wide is $450. and If they pay it in full, they get a 50% discount on any of our cash prices that they pay in full at time of service. That being said, that's the general policy. Every one of our docs has the ability to do what they want with regards to the charges. Like Chirag said, our only exposure really is the time. And of course, if we choose to use an FDA approved medication, that would be a massive exposure, but it it tends to be the time and the Avastin doses that clicks on the laser, which are almost free. Um, And it's very individual, like Ryan said, it's very case by case. If you get a call from a doctor you know and trust who shares a lot of patients with you, who does a good job, who's a a kind person who helps people and wants you to take care of a patient, even pro bono, I'll often just do it, you know? if a patient um, comes in through an ER or um, or comes in as a self-pay patient and has problems, but you know does seem to be putting some skin in the game, and like Ryan said, even if it's a small amount of skin in the game, you know, all the doctors in my practice and me as an individual, certainly as a, as a as as myself as as um, an individual surgeon, I'll help them out. Um, And I go easy on the charges and I'll waive charges and things like that to make it reasonable. But I do like to see them put some kind of effort forth. And I think that demonstrates that they have value. They see value in your services. The hard part is surgery. Surgery is tough because the hospitals often won't put the patient on as a scheduled surgery unless they prepay the hospital fee so what we do with surgery that we're going to do pro bono i always tell the patient i say listen my fee is the least of your concerns this is not going to be a charge it's going to be this small charge or something like that and i'm going to have you go through the er and i have to warn you the hospital is going to collect ruthlessly the er fee the surgery fee and the anesthesia fee and i have no control over that because i don't want them to be surprised and feel that i have Generated this ten thousand dollar bill, and I say, if you want to go to the ER, you know, I'll meet you and declare you an emergency at this time. Um, you know, because I have to take care of you. It's my responsibility and my pleasure to take care of you. Um, and then, oftentimes, the patient will do that, and they probably work something out with the hospital. You
1: know, David, you referenced referring doctors, and that feeds into our next topic. Um, how do you? What what do you do in situations where either a referring doctor or again all of you have partners, um, you're seeing a patient who has a complication after surgery from um, the referring doctor or your partner? I mean, um, and the patient has questions or brings it up or asks, you know, what what's going on? Um, this is obviously something we hopefully don't encounter often. We have for good referring doctors, good partners who take good care of patients, but complications are a part of surgery. And the nature of our practices now is, in retina surgeons A, we see complications from uh, other surgeons sometimes. And we may see them from our partners because we may see, be seeing their post-ops depending on the office that the patient goes to. So, um, what's your general approach if you were advising a fellow graduating for how to navigate these tricky waters?
0: Well, oh, that's, that's actually, that's a lot, man. That's an easy question. That Never say anything negative about a referring doctor. I mean sometimes there's something that's clearly been a complication, such as a dropped cataract fragment or a problem with cataracts, or it is one of the most common ones we see. I often have a little vignette that I say. I say Doctor So and so is an outstanding doctor and he does a good job. He's got a lot of good patients. He's been doing this for ten or 15 or 20 years or whatever, or, or even he was well-trained at a great institution. He's been doing it a couple of years. He had a problem in surgery, which is why he sent you to me. And then I use a vignette. I say, you know, this kind of goes back to something. I say, you know, when I trained in fellowship, I trained in Boston and the Sheik of Araby would fly in on his private plane to have cataract surgery by the famous surgeons at the Mass Eye and Ear. And sometimes there would be a problem, not often. These are the famous surgeons, the mass pioneer. They're well trained. They've been doing this for years, so on and so forth. Just like your doctor, but sometimes in the best of hands, there is a problem, and we're going to do everything we can to get you the best possible vision and reduction of pain and all that stuff. And um, you try to try to always be, uh, um, you know, uh, compassionate and and sympathetic. And I I never. I work very hard, never to place blame. You know, even if it's even if it's from a even if it's a complication from somebody who I know is prone to complications, it's not something to talk about with the patient. I don't think.
1: Ryan, right, how about in uh, your situation? Anything different, or you agree with David?
2: I definitely agree. It doesn't do anybody good to um, say anything negative. It'll just bring up more doubt in the patient's mind. It'll ruin your relationship with the referring doctor. There's just no help that can be gained by saying anything negative. Um, I also tell patients that it's something that I see very commonly as a retina doctor, even though it happens so uncommonly to surgeon A. um, It's something that is very rare for him but it's it's because he's a great surgeon but it's something that I see and deal with very commonly. Um, And that just with any surgery, there's always risk of uh, a poor outcome. And just telling them that I think puts their mind at ease.
1: Shirok, anything different? And, and maybe again the topic of let's say it's within your own practice because again you're in a multi-specialty group. But let's say it's another retina doctor and you happen to be seeing their post-op and there's something amiss. Um, what sort of conversation do you have? Anything? Uh, do you say it a little differently, or, or or maybe exactly the same as Ryan and David?
3: Yeah, you know I don't I don't know if I have too much to add. I, I completely agree. I think it's important to always stay positive and stay. Constructive and supportive, and to remember that the patient uh, never had any plans to see you. Uh, they they plan to have their initial surgery and and live a long and happy life after that. And so I, I just try to be very sensitive to the entire situation because oftentimes you're you know meeting patients on the worst day of their life or one of the one of the worst days of their life, and they might have many emotions about their prior surgeon and the experience and what could have done different what could have been done differently. And so I just I try to stay supportive, and I try to uh, never say anything negative about uh, the referring doctor. Uh, And then I I try really hard to fix them. So I I treat them uh, even more like a VIP than I treat other people and and try to really kind of hold their hand through the process of the additional vitrectomy or the tap and injector, whatever it is they may need, and try to just get them uh, as good as humanly
2: possible. Yeah, It's the chair. They take a lot of chair time there's, I think that's one of the most important things with those complications, the patients who have had a bad out bad outcome is that they do require a lot of chair time. And if you give them that time, then I think that it helps to ease the situation and form a stronger trust.
0: And it helps your relationship with the referring doctor. If, you, if the patient eventually goes back or, or, or what have you. And, and, um, and it diffused somewhat, you know, and the referring doctor is often very nervous about seeing these patients back appropriately. So, you know, I, uh, I can, I can empathize with them having, you know, we all have problems in surgery and these are the ones that you want to see back least. <laughs> and if you can help the situation out as a, as a, as their specialist, as their consultant, you know, their posterior segment surgeon, um, it can really become a positive practice builder if you handle it appropriately and that usually means exactly what ryan said a lot of chair time
1: yeah you guys both reference the natural instinct right we we all intellectually understand that these are the people who need the most time but we've all been in the situation it's almost like a an unconscious instinct we we don't want to see or it's like a human instinct we don't want to see our, our our complications or problems Uh, And you got to fight that kind of impulse, and and really kind of you know swallow your pride and ego, and really take a look and talk to them. Because I I see that I feel this. I mean, we all feel it, and we see it all the time. I see it with the trainees. It's just you have to be willing to have those conversations because those are the most difficult ones.
3: These are the things you need to embrace the most. And it's really hard.
0: You're right. It's really hard to do that. But that's a that's a take home message for your listeners, especially those new in practice your complications and the other person's complications that you're seeing and working on, embrace those patients and, and you will be rewarded.
2: You know, and one, one other point that I want to make in terms of uh, your partners and your referrals, um, I remember it a lot from residency or from when I was a, a, in the retina program at, at Bascom. So you, would always see the patients that come back that have bit, have had problems in surgery or had issues in surgery you don't ever see the prior fellows, amazing cases where they turned out well, because they never come back. And it's the same with your partners. And I think starting out, I was wondering, like, I'm seeing all these bad patients from my partner, but it's because it's a self-selection bias. You only see the people who are having problems from your partners. You don't see it. They're good ones. They just come back for the regular scheduled visits. And so it's important to remember that that bias is there and that your, your partners aren't bad. They have the same amount of complications that you do, um, that you're just seeing those patients because they're the ones who are having issues that day and are coming, being added
1: onto your clinic. Well, guys, uh, thank you so much for your time. I, I, this is going to be a big topic to end on, but we'll try to keep it short. It couldn't be, uh, October, 2018 and have a, retina private practice podcast without the issue of private equity being broached at some point um so i don't want to open a huge can of worms uh but i haven't talked to any of you on the podcast about this issue though we discussed it previously um just briefly your thoughts on the private equity situation um you know is this something that you or your practice would consider um or given the situation um just thoughts on the landscape of retina is this something that is dynamically changing is this something that's kind of ebbing and flowing in a cycle like many people think um, David, do you want to take your first crack at it?
0: Sure. Yeah, I'm happy to. So, um, so I'm a full partner in, in my practice, Rednevich Associates. I just turned uh, 42 last week, so I'm kind of entering my mid-career. You know, I've been at this 11 years now. I'm um, at the beginning of my mid-career, which probably means I'm close to uh, close to the, the peak 20 years of my career. And we get calls literally every week about. Selling to private equity, um, we have not entertained that. And at my stage of, of my career, I feel like I've built my portion of the practice and helped the practice and developed the clinical research division. And, and these are things that I, I really aren't for sale, you know. Partly because the practice is doing well, um, the practice is growing, and the, the things that I feel like I've contributed to the practice are are growing. And partly because um, the philosophy with the private equity, as far as I understand it, which is probably not a complex understanding because we haven't delved into it, um, is that they want to bundle up certain the practices. These investors um, and they give you uh, a piece of the investment, as well as a purchase, uh, what they call the first bite of the apple. And of course, the big kill is the hope that these bundled-up retina practices would be resold, and that would be the second bite of the apple. In the meantime, between the first bite of the apple and the second bite of the apple, there's not a lot of places to squeeze out good financial statements for the larger investor to purchase the bundled-up retina practice. If you look at retina private practices, which are mostly run like small businesses, they're pretty lean, and all the profit goes to the physicians in practice, whether they're partners or associates. And that's where the squeeze has to happen to make this bundled up package of retina practices look appealing for that second bite of the apple. So after your first bite of the apple waiting for your second, you're not really getting as much of an apple as you used to, you know, so you kind of got to sit and wait and and take your licks and hope that second bite happens. and uh, I don't know if that's going to happen. Um, maybe the smart play would be to sell to a group, um, get all bundled up. And, and if the second bite doesn't happen, buy your own practice back and fractionate it out at a fraction of what you were paid for it. But I'm not savvy enough or interested in that process enough to do it. I'm interested in continuing to develop the processes that we have in place in our private practice. So we have not um, entertained that. And I'm, I'm uh, going to go on podcast record saying we are not selling at Retina Vitreous Associates in Florida, <laughs> at least as, as long as as long as as long as my vote is uh,
2: is uh, is counted.
1: Shirag, uh, how about you guys? And how's your own personal philosophy on the private equity situation?
2: Uh, so, gee, I think you're right. This is a big
3: can of worms. The um, I think there's advantages and disadvantages uh, to selling to private equity. I think if you're A full partner, and if the price is right, it can be an amazing golden parachute um, in for a mid-career or more senior doctor. I think what gets sacrificed is your legacy, because um, as as David uh, mentioned with his Apple analogy, um, the salaries go way way down once you sell to private equity, and so you get this. Uh, lump sum in the begin, lump, lump sum in the beginning, and you might get a huge sum later uh, down the road once they pull together various practices. They build up the EBITDA or the earnings before interest and um, more taxes and more So they build up EBITDA and then they try to sell this conglomerate uh, down the road, which you have some shares of, and then you get another huge amount. But the problem is that if you built a highly reputed practice with amazing uh, young doctors that become amazing older doctors. Um, it becomes much less attractive because the salary goes uh, way down for all the new people. I think I think private equity is good for the older folks, but the older folks shouldn't really need this large sum of money. They must. They. They. I, I would hope that they'd be more interested in maintaining autonomy and maintaining their legacy and attracting good uh, young superstars out a fellowship. Uh, in terms of uh, where our practice is, well, our practice is a large multi-specialty practice, um, and we have been approached, and we're not interested in uh, private equity. However, I often wonder, um, would, would folks be interested in our practice and in others if the price was right? So if someone offered a whole bunch of money as, uh, instead of just a lot of money, you know, I, I, my sense is that everyone has a price, and I've seen uh, practices be sold that uh, previously would have thought that they never would have been sold. And I think it's really to the detriment of the of the future and the younger partners. Um, our practice philosophy as a large multi specialty practice is basically just to do what a private equity company would do, and that is just as practices, as small practices in, in our area are coming closer to retirement, we kind of buy them up, and, and we, we just sort of expand by bringing on new people, expanding to new regions, buying up uh, smaller practices and combining them with ours. And so in a way, we sort of are functioning like a private equity company, and and part of the reason that to do that is just to protect ourselves from being forced to sell to a private equity, and that's that's the that's the rub, is that sometimes folks don't have a choice. If a private equity buys your, your, your referring practice, if you have – a large practice or several large practices that provide you with the majority of your, your, your referrals and if a private equity buys all of them and they basically starve you, then you really have no choice but to sell to that private equity or they're just going to bring in their own retina people and, and keep their retina in house. So that's kind of the rub is that sometimes you're forced out and that's happened in some regions. Um, and so our, our philosophy was to just grow, continue to have our own internal uh, referral system. And so if, Everyone around us is bought up by private equity. We still have uh,
2: enough patients to take care of.
1: Ryan, final words before we close?
2: Yeah, the only I agree with everything that they say. The only point that I would have is kind of a warning for fellows coming out and looking for jobs, because these buyouts, they benefit the partners or the owners. If you're an employee and you join a practice that uh, you work for them, you have a three-year Um, employee contract, and in year two, they get bought out by private equity, you have no ownership in that practice, and you can kind of get hosed. And that's happened to people before. And so it's important to maybe ask or kind of get a feeling for, is there any consideration of ever going to private equity? Is that something you guys are ever considering? Is the group that you're joining mainly partners who are in their later years and would be more interested? Because it does benefit people who have been in the practice for a longer period of time and are on their way out. So that's just one warning, something to look out for as you're looking for a new job. Is is there any consideration of selling the private equity before you sign on?
1: Well, David Eichenbaum, Ryan Islam, Shrakashat, thank you so much for your time. We ran over and you guys are super generous, but I think the listeners will appreciate this. Um, and um, hopefully we'll be back with the listeners like this. Who you have further questions, we can put together another one of these in the future. So, guys, thank you so much, and have a wonderful night.
0: Thanks, Jay. Thanks. would love, Thanks, love to come
1: back. Take care. Bye. Bye-bye. Thank you to doctors Eichenbaum, Shah, and Isom for joining me on this program. Remember that all 136 episodes can be found on our website, retinapodcast.com. That's R-E-T-I-N-A podcast.com. You'll find our blog there, how you can contact us. We are on Twitter, at Retina Podcast. You can follow us there. Retinapodcast.gmail.com is the email. We love feedback, uh, so please give me feedback on what you'd like to hear going forward and who you'd like to hear from in terms of guests. Uh, Dr. Louis Kai, despite his internship, has done an amazing job keeping up with the podcast, as have Michael Vandenkos and Angela Chang are fourth year medical students in the throes of their residency application process. So thank you to them for producing this and all our episodes. Listeners, thank you for what you do on a daily basis. The patient care you provide, articles you read and publish, and the conversations you inspire here. This is Jay I'm signing off. Good feeling.
3: This is straight from the (laughs) Carter's mouth! (laughs)